feel like I should introduce myself. It's so encouraging to see Creekside uh, back after the lockdowns and COVID, and there's a lot of new people. And so uh, I'm up here every once in a while. My name is Chris, and I get to help out Jeremy whenever I can, and I'm on the lead team as well. Uh, my job is I work for a missions organization called Multi-Nation Missions Organization Foundation, and we work around the world. So I get the great opportunity of seeing what God is doing globally and being a part of it. Um, I haven't traveled since the pandemic, since the lockdowns 18 months ago, but I'm super excited. I'm hopping on a plane in a week and a half, and we are going to Guatemala as a family. So very excited. So uh, those of you who have been with us for a while, uh, you would, you've probably heard our stories before about what we do in Guatemala. Uh, we're going to be there for six weeks this, this year. Uh, I'm taking Sydney, and we're going for, for two weeks before Laura and the, and the other two show up. They're going to be there for four, but we'll come back at Christmas. And so uh, what we do there is we lead a discipleship leadership training course. It's kind of like a summer camp for my teenagers, and we've done that. We couldn't do it last year, but we did it three years uh, previous for three years in a row. Uh, those were two months, and this, this year it's going to be six weeks. And so I can't wait to get on a plane again, and I can't wait to just be in the lives of those teenagers again. They come from rural mine communities. They live in poverty, and what we do throughout the year is we provide, as an organization, scholarships so that they can continue to go to school. And then they come down on their two-month break, and they come down and they live with us, with a handful of Canadians, and we teach them English. But the whole thing is couched in discipleship and leadership development, and we talk about how they can break the cycles of poverty through education, through learning English and getting good jobs and then helping their communities and helping their families. And the whole thing is premised on their identity in Christ and how they can find uh, fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus. And so just can't wait to be there again in a week and a half. Really appreciate your prayers. And I know that you as a church always stand with us. And so I'll be back in January to tell you some stories and uh, yeah, tell you what God has been doing there. We're going to pick up in Colossians. So we have been going through this series, and I, have, I am preaching through Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17. So I'm going to invite Joshua up, and Joshua is going to read it for us, the whole thing, and then I'm going to kind of work our way through the passage. So if you have your Bibles, it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17. you want a mic, Josh? Joshua. It'll be on. <laughs> there we go. Oh, there you go. Uh, uh, so 3, verse 5 to 17. Uh, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults, and forgive anyone who, who offends you. Remember, 
The Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ, in all its richness, fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, doing things through him to God the Father. Thanks, Joshua. I'm going to pray before we begin. God, we're grateful to gather here together as a church. We're grateful that you call us to do this together. And we're grateful, Lord, that you are the Lord, and that we can follow you, that we can know you. We're grateful for the word of God, for the scriptures that teach us how to live, that teach us who you are, and how we can best find life in you. So I pray this morning that as this passage is taught, that your word would come through. And that your word would speak into our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just fill this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to start by, uh, I want to start by quoting some quotes from uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. Many of you have probably heard of this book, read this book. It is a classic. It's written in 1937. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer talks about what genuine discipleship is and that following Jesus is, is so important. You can't just have lip service, but it actually needs to match your life. This book was written in, uh, in Germany. He was a German theologian uh, under Nazi occupation, and he, he really looked at the culture around him and thought that much, of that much of what is wrong is that Christians say that they're following Jesus, but they're not actually following Jesus with their life, that they're just doing lip service. And so he coins the phrase, cheap grace. And that's kind of what the book is all about, is what is cheap grace? And so I want to read a few quotes, and I think this is going to really help us uh, launch into this section, into the first section of this passage in Colossians. So this is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer has to say. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. Instead of following Christ... Let the Christian enjoy the consolation of his grace. That is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. And then he talks about the opposite of cheap grace. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Just an amazing book. And Bonhoeffer is talking about costly grace. That if we say that we're following Christ, it needs to match how we live. And it's so relevant for today, just as it was in the 1930s. We cannot narrow the gospel down to the management of our sin. And to say that the gospel is just simply, there's something wrong with me. Jesus came to save me, so I'm going to say a prayer and go to heaven when I die. When we narrow the gospel down to that, it becomes cheap grace. When we narrow the gospel down to that and say that character and ethics don't matter, that somehow the gospel is all about what happens when I die instead of what happens also with how I live my life today, that is cheap grace. It is not costly grace. Following Jesus should transform our character. It should actually impact our lives and how we choose to live. 
It demands commitment. And that's what the whole book is about. And I think we read this in the scriptures and we read this in our section in Colossians. So in Colossians chapter 1 and 2 and chapter 3 verses 1 to 4, Paul lays out this beautiful theology. It is all theological. It is doctrine. Paul is preaching the supremacy of Christ. He's saying that Jesus is all that we need. You don't need to add anything else to your faith. It's this beautiful theological framework that Paul lays out. But then he switches gears. Verses 5 onward, he switches gears and he says, Now that I've laid this out, now that you understand this, this then is how you should live. Now that you've got this in your head, this is how it works itself out in your life. What you say you believe must be lived out. I want to be really careful. It's not legalism. Paul has made it very clear that you can't earn your salvation. Salvation is by grace alone through faith. But how we live is evidence that we are saved. I'm pretty sure that's what Paul is talking about here. And if you read most of Paul's letters, the first half, the front half of those letters, it's doctrine, it's theology, it's you need to think this way and understand here's what's happened. But then the last half is almost always practical. Here then is how you live this out. Here's how it should impact your life and how you go about uh, living within our world. If we don't care about sin, if we don't care about ethics or morality, we fall into this trap that Bonhoeffer talks about of cheap grace. It is a trap of cheap grace. It is a justification of sin, but not the transformation, the inner transformation of the sinner. Paul, like Jesus, has a lot to say about how our walk needs to match our talk. And that's what we read in the first bit here. Paul says, put to death, therefore... That therefore, he's referring to chapters 1 and 2. This, this huge theological framework that he's laid out of who Jesus is and that he is supreme, that is the therefore. And therefore, we, are to, we ought to put to death. Take sin seriously. Fight against the character and practices of evil. Paul says we are at war. We are at war against sin. It is reminiscent of Jesus in the Beatitudes or in uh, the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you lust after a woman pluck out your eyeball. If you steal, cut off your hand. Did Jesus mean that uh, seriously? No, we're not walking around without hands or eyeballs. But what Jesus is saying, it's a hyperbole for take sin very seriously. You need to put it to death. The sins that Paul talks about, they are summed up in verses uh, 5 to 9, and they're summed up in two categories. There is sexual sin, and there are sins of speech. We're going to focus on the sexual sin. Sexual immorality is a general description that sums up the other sins that are mentioned here by Paul. The word sexual immorality in the Greek is the word pornea. I think it is up there. Is that the slide? We'll switch the slide there. Yeah, pornea. So pornea is the original Greek word. And so the challenge of translation is to always try to find the most accurate English word that describes the original uh, language. So pornea shows up in the New Testament 25 times. This isn't just one or two or three verses. It's 25 times. This is a word that's used a lot in the New Testament. Uh, back in the day, the NASB, it translated the word pornea as unchastity. But that's not really a word we use as much anymore in our English language. Uh, the New King James translates the word pornea as fornication. Back then, fornication was more of a general term for sexual immorality. But today, most of us would think of that as sex outside of marriage. So the NIV then uses the more general term, sexual immorality. That's what pornea is. The exegetical dictionary of the New Testament, so I'm going to get super nerdy on you. This is how they say it. 
Uh, and this is the dictionary of these Greek words, trying to describe it as best as they can in the English. Pernia means prostitution, unchastity, fornication, and is used of every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. So pernia, we can say, is best summed up this way. It is any sexual activity that is outside of the God-given context of marriage. Anything. And you might be thinking, how rigid, how narrow is that? I would say, yeah, it is. Absolutely. That's God's intention. And you can't get, go very far in reading the whole of the Old Testament and New Testament to see that that's exactly what God intended. Sex happens within the context of biblical marriage. And that's it. He doesn't make allowance for anything else. I understand that this is very countercultural today. This is very, um, yeah, it kind of goes against what our culture says. Any TV show you watch, you see sexual immorality all over the place. You know, the talk about, you know, waiting until you're married, that, those conversations don't even happen on any show that, I can, that I've ever watched uh, these days. But you know what? As countercultural as this is today, it was then too. When Paul wrote this, this was the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was known for rampant sexual immorality. We might think our culture is so depraved today, but nothing is new under the sun. It was probably worse back then than what we are experiencing today. And yet, Paul strongly believes that sex should be confined to the context of marriage, and he's not embarrassed at all to say it. In fact, it shows up 25 times in the New Testament. Rome. Uh, in the 4th century, had more than 45 brothels, just the city of Rome itself. And I looked this up, uh, some, hi some history about this. It was thought that if you removed prostitution from the civic life, that you would overturn the whole social order and that lust would conquer. It was understood back in that day that you needed to provide an outlet for young men to get rid of their lust and young women. And if you don't, the whole social order will be, social order will be turned on its head. And so... They were just as sexually depraved as our culture is now. Nothing is new under the sun. And for the Christians, the early Christians, their sexual ethic was one of the things that defined them. It was one of the things that actually set them apart from the culture around them because they lived so radically different. And they understood sex in the context of marriage to be the only way forward. And that was such a radical idea back then, and it is a radical idea today. And Paul says you need to put to death sexual immorality and anything that falls underneath that. I can't tell you how many marriages I've seen destroyed because of sexual immorality. Whether it's pornography or other forms of adultery, so many marriages destroyed by this. By both men and women. I was a youth pastor for a long time and how many young men that I would counsel and they had an addiction to pornography and when they didn't take it seriously and really try to put it to death, they thought, you know what, when I get married, this is going to go away. And they got married and their marriage fell apart two or three years later. I could tell you story after story and Paul says, put it to death because this stuff will absolutely destroy you. Study was came out last, uh, a couple weeks ago, top 10 searched sites on the internet. You get your usual suspects. You've got Google, you've got Facebook. But you know what? Within the top 10, three of them are pornography sites. That's the world we live in today. They came in ahead of Instagram, Wikipedia, Twitter, Netflix. This stuff is rampant. And unfortunately, it's rampant within Christian circles too, right? We're not immune to this. How many Christian leaders have fallen? Even this year, stories of Bill Hybels, stories of Ravi Zacharias. Incredibly sad. Influential men with incredible... Uh, influence around the world, and yet their ministries uh, are destroyed by this. 
Paul says, put this to death. The stuff will kill you. Our culture is consumed by sexual sin. We need to put it to death. Don't give any room for this in your life. Put it to death. And then there's the sins of speech. And the sins of speech, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. These are sins that tear people down. When you think about it, this is, all, this is something you do to somebody else. You're angry with somebody else or you're spreading malice towards somebody else. So you are tearing somebody else down. Somebody created in the image of God, you are tearing them down. And it causes serious damage and it causes widespread community impact. These types of things, the, the, the sins of speech. One of the first verses that I memorized when I was a teenager, because I noticed that my mouth was starting to get a bit filthy and perverted, and I struggled with this when I was in high school, and I memorized, I think this was the first verse I memorized. Ephesians chapter 5. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building people up. And I went around and I thought, are the words coming out of my mouth building people up? Or are they tearing people down or are they filthy? It's such a great verse to memorize because that is what we're called to do as Christians, is to build people up, not to tear people down. And so anger, rage, malice, filthy language, lying, these are things that tear people down. They, don't, they are not things that bring people up. We all know that terrible saying, sticks and stones will break our bones, names will never hurt us. We all know it's not true. Right? I'd rather get beat up than have somebody tell a terrible rumor about me and spread it. Imagine you guys would too, right? Words have incredible power. And Paul says, put this to death. It means that as Christians, we have to be super careful. The conversations we're having around the water cooler, or these days when we're all stuck at home, you know, what you're texting or what you're putting on Facebook, that the words that come out of your mouth or come out of your keyboard, are they building people up or are they tearing people down? Put it to death. Take this stuff seriously. Our words as Jesus followers need to be pure and clean, not filthy, not perverted. That should not be who we are. Early on in my construction days, I, I, I worked with my dad for a while so I could save up and go to Bible school. And I was a Christian, but I wasn't like a passionate evangelist, but I wanted to stand out. And you know, I wasn't talking about it a whole lot, but I was pretty committed to keeping my mouth clean. And in that environment, most mouths aren't all that clean. There's a lot of profanity and a lot of talking about what you did on the weekend, and it's often not very nice stuff. And, you know, within a few days, people started going, like, why aren't you participating in this? What's with you not, you know, swearing all the time like the rest of us? What an opportunity to talk about why I don't do that. I didn't have to be out there, like, actively sharing my faith. All I needed to do was just speak differently. And when you do that, it's actually countercultural. So we have to be super careful about the things that are coming out of our mouth because we represent, we represent Christ, we represent ourselves. Check out this verse, Matthew chapter 12. Verse 34, is it up there? Yeah, at the bottom. This is, this is a pretty thoughtful verse here. This is from Jesus. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or I, we can say out of the overflow of the, overflow of the heart, our uh, fingers type. What comes out is actually a reflection of what's inside of you. The words that come out and the things that you type. That is a reflection of who you are as a person. And so put to death these sins, Paul is saying. We have to, we are at war against these things. And as Christians, we need to take a stand and we need to look different. Okay, verses 9 and 10. And these are key verses in this whole section. It talks about being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator? Here's what I think it means. God is making us right again. We were born into sin. We were born into brokenness. But God is picking up those pieces and he's making us right again. Because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross, we are being renewed from within. We are being renewed in the image of our creator. So what Jesus talks about, this is the same language in John 3 when he's having a conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again. So it's renewal from within. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. God is doing something new inside of you. You are being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. And this is a direct reference to what we read in Genesis. In Genesis, the creation of Adam and Eve, the creative creation of mankind, God says this, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule. And so the creation story is a story where Adam and Eve were image bearers. And they were to reflect God's goodness and God's beauty to the rest of creation. That's what they were created to do. That's what it meant to be made in the image of God. But then, of course, we have the, the, the horror of the fall of Adam and Eve choosing their own way and choosing their own pride instead of the way of God. But in Jesus, he is restoring us and he is restoring creation. In Jesus, he is doing in us what he wanted Adam and Eve to do at the beginning. We are image bearers. We are reflectors of God in our world, to our neighbors and to our family. That's what it means to be renewed in the image of the knowledge of our creator. It's restored relationship with God and it's restored relationship with others. We put off the old self and we put on the new self. I think this, this Bonhoeffer caught this, right? And Bonhoeffer said, it's not just the justification of sin, it's the justification of the sinner. God is renewing us. He's doing something new in us. He is restoring us to the original creation that we were meant to be in the first place. And sin wrecked it. Verse 11. In Jesus, all the barriers are removed. There's religious barriers. Greek and Jew. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the religious barriers are broken down if you, if you are a Christian. Cultural barriers. Barbarian, Scythian. Barbarians would have been... In modern-day France and Germany, the barbarian Scythian would have been the, the farthest east that they knew of at the time. That would have been modern-day Iraq, Iran area. Worlds apart. That's what they thought back in the day. That's, that's as far away from each other as you can get. And Paul says, in Christ, you are the same. You have been brought together. We have, we have broken the cultural barriers and you are together. And then there's social barriers. And this is radical when you really think about it. Slave and free coming and worshiping together, coming and being on the same level together because of Christ. I was teaching this passage to a group of Indian pastors on Zoom on Tuesday. And I tried to bring it into their world and said, you know, imagine you've got a Muslim who's become a Christian, you've got a Hindu who's become a Christian, and now they are worshiping together. For them, that's radical. There's such a rift between those two uh, religious cultures in India. And cultural barriers. You've got a Pakistani and an Indian coming together. And they, they are at war. They have declared war against each other for, I think, about 40 years it's been. It's like, they are enemies. But in Christ, those barriers are removed. And then, of course, the social barriers is something that's hard for us to understand. But in India, you have this social context. And so you've got the high-caste Brahmin, you get the low-class delete. And what Paul is saying, those things are abolished when you follow Christ. We are all on an equal uh, playing field together. Because Christ is in all and Christ is all. This is radical stuff. 
And when Paul said this to Colossians, it would have been very similar to the Indian culture that I'm used to, where there's all these social structures. And for them to hear this, that we are all the same, that we are equal together, it's, Jesus is the great equalizer. We are all together in on this. So when we put off our old self, we put on our new self, and it's a new relationship with God, and it's a new relationship with each other. Verse 12, we are to clothe ourselves with Christian virtue. So now, we, now we're past the stuff that we shouldn't be doing, and now we exchange it for the stuff that we should be doing. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, all bound up in love. This is reminiscent of Romans 13, 14. Rather, or Paul says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We are clothed with Christ. In the, early, in the early church, they had several different ways to do baptism to try to uh, uh, bring uh, a metaphor to this clothing. The first one is they would baptize people in their old clothes, and when they come up, they would immediately change into new clothes to try to show that you are a new creation and you are now being clothed with Christ. In some of the more radical churches in Rome, um, they would baptize naked, and they'd have men and women separate. Thank goodness for that. And they'd get baptized naked and they'd come up and then the deacons would wrap them in a white robe to signify that they have been clothed with Christ. That their old self has been put to death and their new self has been brought up clothed in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do that here, but there's something beautiful about that imagery. About going down as your old self and coming up as your new self clothed in Christ. That's what we're called to do. So, all of these characteristics, these are the fruits of the Spirit. We preached through this all summer in Galatians, each one of them. So I'm not going to go into each one separately. But as people filled with the Spirit and committed and aligned with Christ, this is how we should live and this is how we should look. So I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine something. You're forced to move. And there's two cities that you have to move to. You only have two options. One city, uh, they are known for verses 5 to 8. Sexual immorality, lying cheating, um, gossip, slander. That's kind of what they're known for. And then you got this other city, the other option that you can go to. And they're known for verses 12 to 14. Love, patience, gentleness, peace, kindness. Which city are you going to choose to go to? I suggest that most of us, hopefully all of us, would far rather be over here in verses 12 to 14 city. Why? Because this is what it means to be human. This is, this is how we all want to be right? This is how we know that the world is better, is when we're living out these virtues. And Paul says, clothe yourselves with Christ. This is how you should look. It's a description of how to best be human. One of the greatest defenses of the Christian faith in our world should be that we live differently, that we actually look different than the culture around us, and that people are drawn into the church, drawn into Christ because of how they see us live. I want to quote here Tertullian. Tertullian was a was a North African apologist back in the, early, in the early days. And he said his best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. And so he, he wanted the outside world to say this about Christians. And here's the quote from Tertullian. Look how they love one another. For they themselves, the pagans, they hate one another. And how they are ready to die for one another yet they themselves are readier to kill each other. Tertullian, he's this great apologist and he's trying to uh, explain the faith, but he says your best, the best way forward to helping people be drawn in is that we live differently and that they recognize it. You know, much has been written about the rise and the growth of the early church. Many historians credit the, 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 the incredible growth of the, growth of the early church in the Roman Empire and it's due to the lifestyle the Christians lived. 
that they, they loved radically. They served radically. They had a sexual ethic that people were drawn to. And people started coming to Christ because they saw that this is a way better way to be human. There must be something true about this because these people have joy and their lives are better off and they're showing the kind of characteristics that we know we're supposed to have. Emperor Julian in the 4th century, now he was a Roman Empire. Christianity was spreading and he hated Christians and he wanted to exterminate Christianity. He was kind of like the last Roman Empire that battled against the Christian faith and his goal was to exterminate it. And so he wrote a letter to the officials and we have this letter. And this letter said, if you want to, to the officials, if you want to get rid of Christians, you need to live like them. That's the only way you're going to get rid of them. It's amazing. So here's what he says. Why do we not observe that it is the generosity towards non-members, care for the graves of the dead, and pretended holiness of life that have especially fostered the growth of atheism? And back then, atheism was Christianity. And so he says, you want to get rid of Christianity, you got to start being more generous. You got to start caring for, for the graves. You got to start living a more holy life because that's, he even recognized it. As a guy that hated Christianity, he recognized this is why it's growing. This is why people are being drawn in because of how they are living. One of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 2.12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That even if they want to accuse us of doing wrong, they can't find anything and they end up glorifying God. That's the lives that we are called to live as Christians. It's costly grace that we actually choose to follow Jesus and, and, and strive to live like Jesus and take his commandments seriously in our life. And that's what's going to draw people in. Do our lives reflect a life of love? Are our lives marked by forgiveness? Are our lives filled with kindness? gentleness, compassion, humility, patience. So we put to death our old self. We put to death those things that we don't want to be about anyways. We've left that way of life. We put it to death. And then we put on our new self. We put on the clothes of Christ. Because we are being renewed in the image of the knowledge of our creator. We are image bearers of God, reflectors of his good character around us so that others would see and want to join, want to ask, why are you different? What is it about you? And we could say, it's not me, it's Christ. Because he's renewing me from within. Because he is the truth and he is the best way for us to live. Verses 15 to 17, we'll wrap this up. There's this corporate nature of Christian worship. And every time I read this, I am grateful for the local church. And I'm grateful that I could wake up on a Sunday morning knowing that we are going to gather together and how I miss this when we were in lockdown. For me, watching the screen on a Sunday morning just did not do it for me. I want you to notice a couple phrases here, verse 15 to 17. It says that we are one body. Together we are one body. It says that the message of Christ should dwell among us richly. Not among me as an individual, but among us as a corporate gathering. It says teach and admonish one another. That means that your faith is not just this little personal thing that you keep to yourself and think that you're going to be okay. No, this is corporate and we need each other. Nowhere in the scriptures do you read of an isolated, individualistic Christian. It doesn't happen. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. And we need one another. We need to sharpen one another. We need to teach and admonish one another. It is not just individual. Although, yes, it is. It's got to impact us personally. But once it does, we are part of the body of Christ. There's no way around that. And we need one another. It says, Psalms, sing hymns, read Psalms together, preach the word. That's what we're doing. That's what the church is. 
And it's so good that we're doing this together and we need each other. We need each other to encourage one another, especially in a culture where there's a lot of darkness and there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of worry. We need each other to come and lift each other up and encourage each other and let the message of Christ dwell among us richly together. These one another passages, it's easy to skim over it. And especially in our Western individualistic 21st century, we tend to skip over these one another passages, but they are all over the scriptures. You cannot do this alone. You weren't meant to do this alone. So stop trying to do it alone. It's... Uh, it concerns me the dwindling church attendance, especially post-COVID, how people have not chosen to come back. Now, I can understand not coming back if you're worried and you're still nervous about COVID. That's a different story. I get that. I respect that. But not coming back because you've just fallen out of the habit or I don't need church anymore. I can do it on my own. You can't. And you're not supposed to. These one another passages are really crucial and we need each other. And we need to keep gathering, we need to keep encouraging, we need to keep sharpening, we need to keep spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. And that's why we do this. And I can't wait to the day that we can start up our small groups. It's tough because we're not allowed to meet in homes. We're looking for space so we can do that. But when that happens, man, getting together and encouraging each other and letting the message of Christ dwell among us richly. So crucial. I have not met many Christians who stop going to church and stay Christian two or three years later. It just doesn't happen. Not very often. The odd time it does. But most people that I know who have said, I don't need church anymore, I'm going to do my own thing, they fall away. That's been my experience. I'm not saying that that's everyone's experience, but that's what I have witnessed amongst my group of friends. So we need each other. And then there's a life of thankfulness, a life of gratitude. Christ has redeemed us. Oh, this is so good, especially in our culture where it's easy to get down. We should be thankful. We're thankful because we can rise above what it is that we see in our world. We can set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated, not on earthly things. And that's a verse that has hit me so hard the last month or two. That's Colossians uh, 3, 2 and 3. Uh, Jeremy preached about that last week. That we put our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Man, we get to live for the kingdom of God. And so whatever's happening here on earth, we don't have to get too concerned about it because we are living for the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord for that. And so we can be thankful. We can live a life of gratitude. Christ has redeemed us. He's renewing us from within. We are being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. The old is gone. The new has come. come. He calls us holy, chosen, and dearly loved. You notice that at verse 15? holy, chosen, dearly loved. That's who you are. And so, boy, we have every reason to celebrate, every reason to be thankful, every reason to live a life of gratitude. And so, well, I've said a lot, and it's, there's so much in this passage, and I know you might only remember a fraction of what I've said, so let me just try to sum it together in three things. One, put sin to death. Don't let it get a foothold in your life. That stuff will destroy you. And you are meant to be a representative of God in our world. Two, clothe yourselves with Christ. Put on the character of Christ. Strive to live that way. Invite Christ in by his spirit to enable you to show those fruits of the spirit. And three, live a life of thankfulness and worship. Individually, yes. Corporately, really important. The one and other passages. Life of thankfulness and worship. And we do that best when we do it together as the body of Christ. So there's three things for you. I'm going to invite Joshua and the band to come up, and I'm just going to spend some time in prayer. God, 
We're grateful for your word that shows us how to live. And I pray that we would be people that follow you deeply. We are committed to you, Lord. We don't want lukewarm, dry faith. We, we don't want to experience or live into cheap grace, Lord. We want, we want to be truly aligned with you. And that your life would just flow out of us as we are clothed with Christ. And so continue to renew us from within. Jesus, we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you that you are our Lord and that we get to follow you and that we get to know you. That you have saved us. You've wiped away our sins. And we are free to pursue you without guilt or shame because of the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for your love and for your mercy and for your goodness. We love you, Lord. Help us to follow you well and represent you well in our world because the world so desperately needs it. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.